you're listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington, and my research focuses on machine learning methods for generating and reasoning with natural language. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Jun Koo Park, an associate professor and honors faculty in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at UMass Amherst. He leads the Cognitive and Developmental Neuroscience Lab, focusing on understanding the developmental mechanisms and neurocognitive underpinnings of our knowledge about number and mathematics. Jun Koo's PhD thesis is titled Experiential Effects on the Neural Substrates of Visual Word and Number Processing, which he completed in 2011 at the University of Michigan. We talk about numerical processing in the brain, starting with nature versus nurture, including the learned versus built-in aspects of neural architectures. We talk about the difference between word and number processing, types of numerical thinking, and symbolic versus non-symbolic numerical processing. The Thesis Review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Thesis Review. To support the podcast, go to patreon.com slash thesisreview, or make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash thesisreview. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's June Koo Park with Experiential Effects on the Neural Substrates of Visual Word and Number Processing on the Thesis Review. (laughs) So your thesis deals with uh, word and number processing, but maybe before going into it, uh, we could talk a bit about your background and how you got interested in doing research, interested in the idea of doing a PhD. Well, um, it's been a long time, but uh, I think I remember, the way that I remember is um, I actually had no idea what research was. In undergrad, um, I had a very nice, like very cool professor who was um, who was very influential in my life uh, in a way that he was having, you know, very, uh, he was visionary, first of all, and he had a lot of creative ideas. Um, actually, there was a there were a set there. There was actually a set of professors that I had uh, back in college who were all inspiring in in many different ways. So, not knowing anything about research, I, I just thought that I I wanted to be like one of those guys. So, um, so then I kind of wanted to. So back then, I I, I majored in industrial engineering, and I was. Um, interested in mostly in human factors. So basically like making products and how, how you make better products so that, you know, it's better for people to use. So nowadays it's, um, you know, it can be framed as like human computer interaction or human centered design. Um, so I thought I wanted to just like, you know, go to grad school because, you know, that was one way that uh, one can become a professor. So so that's where, you know, so then I went to um, do a master's program in human-computer interaction, which I, I was interested in back then. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that was the time when I kind of slowly understood like what research was. And um, and at the same time, I realized that uh, so it was still like part of an engineering, right? Computer science engineering program. But then that was the time when I realized that um, this is actually not the kind of research that research that I wanted to do <laughs> because um, I, I, I don't know. I just thought it was, um, well, one, it was really competitive in a way that uh, everything, everything, at least back to me, it was kind of considered as something um, it was considered as a race to me, right? So you have to develop this further. You have to come up with this algorithm, you know, faster. Uh, you need to achieve this better, you know, come up with a better system than your peers or your colleagues or your competitors. So it felt really competitive at one, uh, you know, on the one hand. On the other hand, um, I was, as I said, I was in human-centered design. And um, I thought if I wanted to do something really well in that domain, I would, I I think uh, I would rather be more successful in industry rather than Mm. in academia. So that's when I, at the same time, I was taking some psychology courses, obviously for the reasons that I wanted to know more about humans to be, uh, to do better in human-centered design. But then uh, a couple of those psych courses, and again, I had great professors back then, uh, really got me interested in kind of learning more about like more about science as opposed to engineering. So then that was when I realized, okay, well, actually this sounds like, you know, the kind of research that I want to do. Um, and that's how I got into, or I applied to psychology graduate programs. And, you know, then I went on to um, doing a PhD in psychology. Yeah, that's interesting that originally you had a kind of a background that wasn't purely in psychology. Right. I'd imagine that when you started the PhD, you kind of really knew that that's what you wanted to do then. <laughs> uh, yes and no. I, well, it was, again, kind of like, I guess I guess I was a little ambitious in a way that uh, I didn't know actually much about psychology either when I started, when I, when I um, applied for a psychology PhD program and actually when I got in. So... Um, I yeah compared to my peers I had real I probably had taken uh three or four site courses maximum so uh, I was still very kind of total newbie <laughs> back then and then so how did you begin to kind of land on a certain research area yeah so um at the beginning I was I was wanting to study something related to vision um including some computational modeling as well. Um, Because back then that was, I thought I was having some expertise in computational modeling since, you know, I have engineering and programming background. So that's, I thought, you know, that would be interesting to look at how the mind and brain processes these different, um, you know, visual objects. Mm. So that's what I wanted to do at the beginning. Um, but, you know, a lot of random things can happen, you know, especially early on in your PhD um, training. And back then, my PhD advisor kind of gave me a project, uh, an fMRI project, Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging Project, where um, it was mostly like empirical stuff, right? So compared to computational modeling, this is empirical. So 
I had to kind of rethink about what I wanted to do, or not necessarily what I wanted to do, but like what I'm actually doing now. <laughs> so which involved a lot of experimentation, uh, data analysis, and things like that. And that got me into um, more of a of an experimental side of psychology as opposed to like modeling side. Um, so then again, but it was still within the realm of like high level vision. So I studied um, how pe people process, visually process um, different objects such as like faces or uh, just everyday objects. And then I started getting interested in reading, in other words, like visual word form recognition. I see. And so then the title of your thesis is Experiential Effects on the Neural Substrates of Word and Number Processing. And from what I understand, like a lot of your research since the thesis really focuses on or includes a lot of this numerical aspect, uh, mm. numerical cognition and things like that. Mm. So when did that topic start to become interesting to you? Yeah. Um, so one of the um, things that I, the, the reason, one, one reason that I really got interested in number or not number, but uh, letter processing, like word form uh, recognition is because um, it's kind of mentioned in the title too, but it is, in my opinion, it is one of the um, one of the ideal um, domains to study how nature versus nurture, nature and nurture interacts. Mm -hmm. Because um, as a human brain, you know, the human brain, we're not like evolved to process these words, but yet at the same time, um, over lots of training, in typically in childhood, the brain is able to process these words in a very fast, efficient manner. So it's as if like you're you have this like general capacity uh, computational uh, I guess system that later on has been used exclusively almost exclusively to become an become an expert in mm -hmm. reading. So that's kind of one reason that what I was really interested in word form recognition, this interaction between nature and nurture. But then I was reading a lot of papers in that domain, and um, one, you know, very influential researcher in my field uh, has been kind of pioneering in a lot of different um, subfields, and his uh, one of his main fields was uh, were from recognition, but another of his was uh, numerical cognition. Mm -hmm. So then I started reading um, those other papers too. And realize that that's another very interesting area because again, that's where nature and nurture interaction happens. So, um, and then on, the, on top of that, I was thinking, well, you know, I'm probably gonna graduate. I'm gonna have PhD in a, a couple of years, but then I didn't know where I would end up going. Right. So, if I am able to continue to do research, then um, would I be? So, I'm originally from Korea and I didn't know when I, you know, whether I'm going to be stay here or go to Korea or, you know, go to some other country where um, they don't use um, alphabets, for example. So in that case, all my kind of expertise that I built <laughs> studying uh, Roman alphabets uh, are going to be somewhat, you know, it's going to be somewhat no use. <laughs> so it's kind mm -hmm. of a strategically speaking, I thought, well, you know, number and math is a universal language. So why not study that? So that was kind of a, uh, an additional reason for me to uh, 
get more interested in number. Yeah, that's interesting that the numbers kind of transcend all different languages, things like that. Right. So, yeah, could we go a bit more into this nature versus nurture idea and maybe starting with the words, because this is one thing you looked into in your thesis. And I mean, we could just speak more more broadly. So I guess you looked at this area called the visual word form area mm-hmm. uh, and then conducted a study with with twins. Right. So to the extent that you remember or want to talk about it, what did you look into in, in your thesis? Yeah, so... Um... Yes, I do remember some aspects of that, you know, study. It was more than probably fifteen years ago. But um, the, the the bottom line is that uh, we wanted to look at to what extent uh, the neural structure is shaped by um, nature versus nurture. So the visual cortex, which is towards the bottom back part of the, your brain, um, is hierarchically organized so that. Uh, the incoming visual information gets processed from you know the very low level features and then it kind of goes on propagates towards the visual hierarchy and forms a representation of a more complex image of the scene and at some point um it's thought to uh the the, the parts of the brain are thought to process objects and object identities and we were interested in looking at to what extent that part of the brain region, uh, that part of the brain is responsible for processing different categories of visual items. Um, And three things are interesting there, which are, so so we're looking at three different categories. Like, so one is um, faces, which are thought to be somewhat very driven by nature because, you know, we have been evolved to look at faces and understand faces of others. Um, and then so faces will be kind of on one end of the spectrum where it's going to be predominantly, you know, nature driven. Um, everyday objects like man-made everyday objects are going to be on the other spectrum because we are not evolved to process in, process these visual images of, for example, chairs and shoes and, and monitors or, or, or whatnot. So I think we use chairs for, ex- for specific examples. Mm-hmm. Um, so faces w- could be on one end of the spectrum, like these everyday objects are on the other end of the spectrum. And we also wanted to look at to what extent um, visual war forms are processed because it's got to be somewhere in between nature and nurture. So that's pretty much what we wanted to test using twins because using twins, we could look at to what extent um, monozygotic or identical twins are similar to each other versus to what extent fraternal uh, dizygotic twins are similar to each other. Mm -hmm. So um, the degree of similarity between monozygotic and uh, dizygotic uh, or the differences between the similarity could tell us, uh, give us some clue about to what extent nature is playing a role or nurture is playing a role. so yeah, so that was kind of the overarching question, and we had hypothesized that there is going to be a degree, there's going to be different degrees of um, experiential influence measured by this difference between MZ twins and DZ twins patterns of neural activity in that visual cortex along that uh, different categories of visual items. 
going from faces all the way to everyday objects. Yeah, like what's your sense of, um, if you could summarize like the, the nature versus nurture, I mean, it seems like the activity ended up having the, like you show that there's these environmental effects. Do you think that, is there still some um, like specific architecture related to word forms that maybe encourages development in a certain area of the brain? Or do you kind of start out fully general and then kind of anything can happen based on the environmental factors? Oh yeah, that, that's a great question. Uh, so this is this is definitely you know not just my personal theory. This kind of theory has been existing um, mm. and has been especially developed by uh, some of other um, uh, I guess leading researchers in the field. But definitely, um, there's this um, theory called uh, neuronal reuse or recycling hypothesis or theory, where basically that there are parts of the neuron that are that are already advantageous for processing certain types of um, information. And it mm-hmm. just turns out that, uh, according to this theory, it turns out that VWFA, in other words, visual world from area, is already a brain region that is really um, equipped to process these fine lines and fine or you know different orientations. Um, but then on top of that, with a lot of experiential or education and, and training, um, that part of the brain is now really becomes dedicated to process uh, word forms in particular. Uh-huh. So one evidence, piece of evidence behind that is, um, so if, you know, VWFA without the input, without the visual input of a lot of different number uh, letters and not words, is well-equipped to process fine lines, uh, orientations, and all these things, um, it, it, should be, um, it should be susceptible. And also, okay, there's another piece of this too, which is that the vision prefers, our vision prefers to process things uh, more in a symmetric manner because in nature, this is the argument, that in nature, a lot of things are symmetric. So... Uh, the, the visual cortex, the, the part of the visual cortex that I've been mentioning is really well equipped, equipped to process like fine lines and orientations in a somewhat symmetric manner. So it's preferred to, to process symmetry. Um, but as you know, um, letters are not, a lot of letters are not symmetric. So for example, like small letter P, small letter Q, they're kind of like... Um, what's the their their reflection of each other is that right so um so that's why people make according to this theory people make a lot of uh, confusions and mistakes distinguishing p and q especially in childhood Mm. so again that's because the uh visual word from area prior to being trained by these letters and numbers are really good at processing fine lines and squiggly things but um, it assumes symmetry in a lot of different sense because that's how the nature has been evolved for our brain. So it makes a very it makes a lot of mistakes distinguishing between P and Q or such kind of reflections because of that. Um, but once then you get trained a lot over childhood with a lot of input with you know letters and numbers, uh, letters and words, then um, you get to dissociate those efficiently. 
and um, therefore you're able to process them as um, you know as unique letters and words. Right. So that's I just wanted to give you one other uh, kind of an indirect evidence for that too. Another evidence piece of evidence is that. Um, so the human brain, we have two hemispheres, right? So the, the two parts of the brain are somewhat identical in terms of how, it, you know, how things get processed, you know, how the, the neural architecture. So you can imagine that the two sides of the visual cortex should be doing something similar in its computation. Um, but uh, most of the time in adult brains, especially in right-handed people, the VWFA gets formed or emerges in the left side of the, the visual cortex, not on the right side. Mm. Uh, so then, why that might be, um, and that's because, according to some of the you know some of these theories and also some of my own empirical uh, results, suggest that um, the reason uh, VWFA emerges in the left side of the brain because of its connections. You know, via the white matter tracts to and from the language areas, which are mostly in the left hemisphere. Mm -hmm. So, um, even though both the right and the left part of the visual cortex are good candidates for processing letters and words because they're really well equipped to process fine lines and orientations, the left one gets picked up because of the connections to and from. Uh, the language areas, which are essential for learning uh, letters and words. Yeah, that's really fascinating. So, yeah, the like one reason I got interested in this question is because in machine learning, there's this question of like, should you just have a fully general kind of architecture and then mm -hmm. learn everything that's relevant, or should you kind of hand code in some some type of knowledge either into the architecture or or, or so on. So yeah, it sounds like probably very roughly speaking, there are certain kind of primitives that are uh, biased towards being good at certain things, and then that will mm -hmm. promote easy learning in those areas. Right. Uh, but some, but yeah, ultimately it does come down to learning for the specific skills. Mm -hmm. Right. So then, how is the representation of numbers different from words or is it the same oh uh that's okay so let's see there are multiple levels uh to talk about in in this question so one is when you're when you're assuming numbers as like arabic numerals so that's one thing numbers as a, as a concept then that's another question um but i can first address um your question based on numbers as arabic numerals mm -hmm. so one interesting um, aspect of numbers and letters is that there are cultural inventions and the distinction between them is totally cultural, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, and numbers, what I mean again, is are Arabic numerals. So um, there's no reason for the brain to process numbers and letters differently, right? If, if there's no... Um, cultural distinction between them. So again, going back to good candidate regions for VWFA, you know, those candidate regions are also good for 
numbers too. Because again, there's there are just like squiggly lines and different orientations and different lengths. So then um, in the end though, what we find is that I told you that the VWFA is primarily um, housed in the left visual cortex. Numbers or Arabic numerals are processed preferentially in the right visual cortex. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was one of my early contributions and uh, also followed up with a lot of other um, studies um, from not only from neuroimaging, but also like from uh, direct cortical uh, activity measures too, showing that um, the right side of the brain is um, seems to have this like so like an equivalent of VWFA, which is more like visual number form area. Mm-hmm. And again, the reason for that, uh, according to this kind of recycling neuronal recycling theory, and also based on um, and some of the proposals that I make, is because of the connection between and to and from uh, the numerical, I guess, uh, magnitude processing regions in the brain, which are mo- more mostly housed in the right side of the parietal cortex. Yeah, yeah. So that that's kind of one very interesting aspects about how nurture, how experience can shape our brains uh, differently for letters and number processing. Yeah, I see. And maybe we could go a bit more into this um, because I think it relates to what you did in the thesis. So I guess at the time there was this single dissociation between um, words and number representations And then what you did was to establish the double dissociation. Could you talk a bit through just like the backstory of of, of working on this? I think, um, yeah, okay. I think this was when I was, so my PhD advisor had expertise in um, high-level vision and neuroimaging, but he did not have um, much or he did not do any studies on number per se. So. But then, um, if I remember correctly, this was a moment when I just suggested that we, um, so to speak, throw in another condition in an fMRI experiment (laughs) to use um, not only letters and faces and all these other things, but also numbers. Um, And so, and he agreed. And we put um, numbers as one condition within that experiment. And that was the first time I think we saw some this, as you said, double dissociation between letters and numbers uh, in these opposite hemispheric regions. Mm-hmm. And then what then I also wanted to look at to what extent these regions are. Uh, so, you know, the, the theory that I told you before is because the reason that we have uh, these number areas in the right hemisphere is because of this connections to and from the right side of the parietal cortex. So I wanted to test that um, empirically. So then I, again, I convinced my graduate advisor to throw in, (laughs) again, the word throw in sounds awful, but uh, uh, throw in a uh, kind of a a numerical task, like a a different experiment on the same subjects. So we had participants this time, have them read uh, and uh, do some simple arithmetic using just dots, right? So no mm-hmm. Arabic numerals. So they're, they're not processing anything visually. They're just processing uh, 
They're just doing like simple additions with very small numbers represented in dots, such as like, you know, one plus two or three minus one. So it's just to kind of make them engage in this numerical thinking to evoke their um, so-called parietal magnitude regions. So then he agreed again. And then so we ran this full study with participants, you know, looking at letters and numbers and also participants doing um, simple arithmetic using uh, from dot arrays. And that's when we looked at um, kind of to what extent uh, one person's activation of the number form area is lateralized towards, you know, the right side of the brain is related to what extent that per person's uh, arithmetic area or uh, mental calculation areas are lateralized to the right side of the brain. And we found this cross, um, across subject correlations between the degree to which uh, laterality happened for the visual form of numbers and also for the, uh, the, the calculation arithmetic form of uh, mathematics. Mm -hmm. I see. So then when you say numerical thinking, are there, do you have to like get more specific about what that means? Are there kind of more like approximate things that you use for comparisons versus like the exact form that you see when you're doing something arithmetic? Are there right. different types of numerical thinking? Yes. Yes. And that's definitely, um, that's a great question. That's, that's what I'm actually studying now more recently. Mm. So um, when it comes to numerical thinking, um, there are different types. First of all, there, um, I think you can make a categorization between non-symbolic versus symbolic. So non-symbolic meaning um, there's no symbols for numbers. In other words, for example, like numerals. So we can still do have some numerical or quantitative thinking using, using non-symbolic mind, such as uh, I can show you, let's say, a pile of 10 apples just you know very quickly so you're not able to count it. And I can show you another pile of, let's say, uh, 12 apples or 13 apples, again, very quickly so you're not able to count it. And without mm -hmm. counting, you're able to you know judge which is more. So this is one aspect of this non-symbolic symbolic numerical thinking where you're not using symbols. Of course, uh, when that number of, let's say, apples goes down, such as to like one versus two or three versus, you know, one, four, you can, even though, you know, I presented very briefly, you have a very good exact uh, sense of the exact number of items. Mm -hmm. So within non-symbolic um, numerical thinking, it involves this uh, the so-called subitizing, subitizing range, typically between numbers between one, two, three, or sometimes four, that we have a very exact uh, representation of these, the number. But beyond four, as I, you know, as in my other example of like ten apples versus thirteen apples, we're not able to make that precise, exact um, representation. So again, this non-symbolic numerical thinking, it starts very precise in this very small range between one to one and three, but beyond that, we're kind of guesstimating the number. So that's kind mm -hmm. of a non-symbolic numerical thinking. But then there's symbolic numerical thinking. 
as we all know, starts from uh, the concept of natural numbers, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. We know exactly what seven means. We know exactly what um, you know thirteen means. Um, so that's symbolic numerical thinking, and um, yeah. So so those two are kind of the big two big ways of um, defining numerical thinking. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, I have a couple questions about that. So, like, with the um, non-symbolic thinking, is this found outside of humans? Like, would animals be capable of this? Yeah. And would this be, like, more nature, potentially? Or, yeah, what, what do you think about that? Going back to right. the nature versus nurture. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to make my, myself sound... Um, you know, trying to make a distinction between nature versus nurture uh, mm. all the time. But yes, um, so non-symbolic um, numerical thinking is found in, in non-human species, non-human animals, um, mm-hmm. such as uh, there's a lot of evidence from, again, non-human apes, um, non-human mammals, and sometimes insects, like birds and insects as well. So uh, you'll see, you know, here and there are a couple of studies showing that, um, you know, this animal can do some basic math, right? And they're able to do like one plus one or one plus three, or sometimes like um, like large number additions and large number subtractions, even though that, you know, they're not precise, they're rough, rough, you know, they're very approximate. So yes, those abilities are shared with other animals and uh, therefore we think that that's um, an evolutionary older system that is kind of more of a of a um, attributed to more of nature as opposed to nurture i see and then although intuitively there's a kind of link between the approximate number and say a natural number when you actually look at what's happening in the brain maybe this is too general of a question but Mm -hmm. Are they similar at all, or are these completely two different distinct um, things, the approximate non-symbolic system versus the symbolic system? Yeah, they're, they're very different. Um, mm. I think, um, so, from, so from, from like neuroimaging studies and um, like fMRI and EEG studies, for sure, they're, uh, they show very different patterns. And it's kind of, you know, it's kind of, a, I guess my take on that is that you don't even need to look at the brain, look into the brain to look at how how different they are because you can simply, you know, look into behavioral studies and behavioral findings and show that they're very different. Of course, they're, they're overlapping their common allies between those two, but mm-hmm. um, symbolic system is definitely using much more of the kind of linguistic capacity than non-symbolic. So some people argue that Non-symbolic numerosity, or um, sorry, it's another new term. So numerosity, by the way, is is, um, is a term to indicate number in a non-symbolic way. Um, but anyway, so some people would argue that, um, let's say, a non-symbolic number processing is not necessarily number because it's approximate. So its number is uh, dedicated to the term number is dedicated to uh, refer to like precise representations, precise concepts. 
So some people uh, even argue that it should be like quantity processing as opposed to number processing. But um, anyway, so I'm just illustrating these um, arguments to deliver the point that symbolic and non-symbolic, especially like natural number processing and approximate number processing are very different things. And then, yeah, another thing I wanted to ask about, I was looking through some of your work. So there was one paper that you had that was looking into whether there's a neural mechanism for direct perception of this numerosity that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I think it was about like the, the visual system. And then I think there was another paper which said that there's this issue of like um, acuity, whether you can attribute improvements to different aspects. I don't, maybe you can unpack yeah, yeah, yeah. These, these things a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you're touching upon two uh, very important kind of debates that have been around in my field for a while. Mm. Um, we can start with the, the, the latter one first. So the latter one is related to this theoretical proposition that uh well okay so so the the question about so the scientific question is where does our uh number concepts come from Mm -hmm. so number concepts here mean um precise number concepts so symbolic thinking so for example children are able to count so at the very beginning you know early on let's say a two-year-old are able to count uh, or say the, the the count list from one to ten flawlessly, right? One, two, three, four. My my sons, uh, you know, when they're two, they're able to count from one to ten, but actually not knowing exactly what they mean. Mm-hmm. But at some point later on in childhood, probably you know by the time that they get to you know four, five, and six, definitely, they are able to understand that number words mean precise um, numerical, you know, has precise numerical meanings. And they know exactly what that you know what they mean. So the one big question in the field is okay, where is that you know how how um, how do we achieve that knowledge? How do you achieve? How do you acquire that concept? Mm-hmm. Um, one kind of argument um, theory theoretical proposal suggests that um, largely that understanding of numerical concepts come from uh, this approximate arith- uh, sorry approximate number system in other words our symbolic non-symbolic representation of number so the idea here is that it's like um, I'm not sure if this is like a good analogy but it's like a Darwinian you know continuity idea where uh, our symbolic our concept of symbolic numbers, are just a continuum of our non-symbolic representation of number. One line of evidence comes from correlational studies. So uh, this was a famous study uh, many years ago showing that uh, people's young children's acuity, acuity here means acuity in terms of the um, this approximate number sense. Here means to what extent you can distinguish, let's say, 10 apples versus 13 apples. If you're only able to distinguish uh, 10 apples from 15 apples, let's say, uh, your acuity might be not good, right? But if you're able to distinguish 10 apples from 11 apples, then your acuity is very good, right? So you have a much higher acuity for uh, your number sense. 
So um, a set of older studies uh, in our field has suggested, look, um, demonstrated this correlation between children's acuity in this non-symbolic number sense with their like math performance. Mm. So if you're able to distinguish, let's say, 20 dots from 22 dots, right? That means you have a very good acuity. Then you're actually very pretty good at math. Um, so this, so again, this is going in favor of this uh, theoretical proposition that uh, our understanding of precise number concepts come from non-symbolic under non-symbolic number representations. Mm-hmm. Um, so one um, of the contributions that I had in the field um, was that. So these are correlational, so I wanted to look at whether there's any causality into it. So then we had a participant. So these, these were, at first, we had like adult participants. So we had adult participants um, get trained on one of these non-symbolic number sense tasks. So in this case, we did not use a comparison task. We instead use addition and subtraction tasks. Mm-hmm. So imagine that you're adding, so these dot arrays are shown very briefly and you're not counting, but imagine that you're adding like 15 dots and then another 20 dots. The question is, to what extent can you mentally form a representation of the addition of the sum of those two and compare that with like a third array? Mm-hmm. So over the time course of a week or two weeks, we train adult participants to do this, and obviously they, you know, they were doing this better to some extent. And then we tested uh, whether their symbolic math performance or math ability, just using like two-digit, three-digit addition and subtraction problems, improved prior to, before, and after this training. Mm-hmm. And um, in a number of experiments, we found significant improvement in uh, participants' arithmetic performance after this non-symbolic arithmetic training. So then we also went on to studying this with in kids. Uh, we kind of devised this kid-friendly version of this addition and subtraction. Um, and then they, uh, people, uh, uh, and then uh, they're given this math, like more or less like a formal math problems before and after. And we also saw some improvements in their math performance. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what you're referring. I think that was one of the things that you were referring to. One of the um, things that I should note here is that um, we followed up with this adult study, which did not replicate. Um, so mm-hmm. that was a bummer. But um, it looks like so the adult um, results of this, you know, this training effect did not seem to. Um, I guess, thrive. But the children data, uh, so it was replicated in another setting. The children's data, children data actually did seem to replicate. And especially for those who aren't doing very well in at the beginning, uh, they had a lot of advantages for um, advantages in, in training this, training with this approximate arithmetic, um, showing some improvements in formal math. So again, it's kind of a, it's kind of unfortunate that I wasn't, you know, we weren't able to replicate the adult study, but it looks like there's something um, going on in children. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and especially if it is occurring in children, do you think that this has some implications for education that, you know, maybe you could do this approximate training and have that influence the symbolic training something right. along those right. lines? So I think that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, that set of studies got um, a lot of attention, media attention as well, public attention. But um, I mean, to be honest, the reason that we initially, I initially, you know, uh, kind of started this project with my postdoc advisor back then was purely from kind of a cognitive scientific research question. (laughs) Um, mm-hmm. But then, um, of course, there's, you know, these uh, educational implications as well. So for sure, yes, I think um, I think there are uh, merits to these findings where you can potentially use different ways of having improving children's numerical thinking and potentially that could help them uh, improve math performance. But one thing when you think about educational implications, though, uh, one thing that you need to be mindful of, especially considering these educational implications, is um, the effect size. Right. So, is the effect size worth um, big big enough to worth you know making this into like some kind of a uh, pedagogical program? Because if it's not, then so for example, um, let's say your um, I don't know. Let's say you want to improve your basketball skills, mm-hmm. right? So let's say you want to shoot better. You want to make, you know, more, more shots. Um, of course you want to have good, um, you want to build good leg muscles. So, you know, sprinting and running might help you, right? For sure. Sprinting and running will help you shoot better in basketball. But if you can be better at basketball by shooting more, then would you, what, what would you choose? Would you choose to sprint <laughs> or would you choose to just spend more time in the court on the court? Mm-hmm. So, so it's, it's um, so I think um, there's some, there's several limitations to directly apply my uh, previous findings to educational setting, but it definitely adds in to uh, when considering some potential uh, educational programs for improving kids' um, numerical thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, there's this kind of approximate um, perception almost of, of of numbers, and then there's the symbolic counterpart of numbers, and then you could think about like these fairly simple, maybe arithmetic type operations with the number numbers. In terms of just mathematics in general, like mathematical reasoning, um, what's your sense of like how much of mathematics is tied to these arithmetic type operations? Or do you eventually like move to more complicated mathematics that just requires a completely new area of the brain? I don't know if that makes sense. So are you asking... To what extent these different, um, I guess, categorization of different types of numerical thinking is related to arithmetic or? I'm saying like, um, if you find something in this area, does it strictly Mm -hmm. apply to 
maybe like simple arithmetic, or does it apply to mathematics in general? If you show higher skill on arithmetic, mm-hmm. would that then correspond to just general mathematical skill? Oh, I see. I see. Um, yeah, yeah. I think I think arithmetic is definitely foundational to higher advanced mathematical skills. So, mm-hmm. um, yes, I, I think arithmetic is one important kind of stepping stone into into it. So, although, um, I mean, this is kind of a, just a, aside from scientific research. I, I see my kids. Um, learning <clears throat> multiplication division and you know these arithmetic in school and i do see differences in terms of this like procedural learning of arithmetic versus you know the understanding the, the conceptual aspect of it which seem mm-hmm. to be different or at least partially different so when you say arithmetic um i think it also depends on how you achieve, how you approach that arithmetic, right? As as if you're like just uh, retrieving arithmetic facts to solve problems or actually thinking about, you know, uh, adding and subtracting and multiplying. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, that, that does make sense. That like sometimes the mathematical problem might involve, yeah, retrieving facts, coming up with some intuition, that might right. go beyond just yeah purely doing the computation, right? So um, actually, so I, I just thought of one other thing that so <laughs> probably like fifteen minutes ago you asked two different questions and I said I was gonna address the latter one first, uh-huh. and then um, I can go back to uh, uh, addressing that first one or um, if you have some other questions that I can I'm happy to answer any of those too. Yeah, yeah. It was on the neural, whether there's a neural mechanism for direct perception of numerosity. Right. right. Okay. So, um, so, I, so in the past, like five, 10 minutes, I've been talking about this one um, hot debate within our field about the, the underlying source of numerical number concepts and this mm-hmm. correlation and causation between um this non-symbolic thinking and, and symbolic number concepts. Another interesting uh, hot debate in our field is it just concerns non-symbolic numerical, you know, number perception. This is actually perception. So, mm-hmm. uh, and, and little to do with the actual number concepts. But uh, uh, the debate is that um, our is our brain capable of extracting numerical information, numerical here is non-symbolic numerical information directly or via other magnitude dimensions. The reason why this becomes a question is because let's imagine that you have, uh, so typically in our experiments, we use dot arrays. So let's say you have a black screen, you have 16 dots um, scattered around on the center of the screen. you can draw those 16 dots in different ways, right? You can draw them, you can draw each of those dots big so that the total area, the total like white stuff on the screen is a lot more. Or you can, um, or you can make it small, or you can kind of scatter around those 16 dots 
in a more in a much larger kind of a area. So make it like much sparser, or you can make it, you can pack it in a very small enclosed enclosed area to make it denser. Mm-hmm. So so these are um, different, the so to speak, non-numerical or continuous magnitude dimensions that necessarily vary uh, along with numerical magnitude of a dot array. Mm-hmm. So the question is, so you know, there's been a lot of studies showing uh, using these kind of kinds of dot arrays, showing that, uh, and also arguing that uh, people and and non-human animals have ability to process number in an approximate way, right? They're able to represent number non-symbolically, and they have all these kind of behavioral uh, characteristics, um, psychophysical measures, and, and properties of numerical, um, non-symbolic numerical representations. But the question is, do we really, and of course non-human animals too, do we really process these dot arrays in terms of its number? Or is it that our visual system encodes other dimensions such as density, right? Or total cumulative area of the white stuff first, and then later on extracts numerical information. Mm. So that has been kind of a big, you know, hot topic in uh, lately. And so, so yeah. So I think uh, yeah. So you're referring to one of my studies showing. Um, demonstrating some evidence of direct uh, encoding of number of items. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was, and, and I think this is a little, this has been a little surprising in the field because um, we kind of assume that the visual system is processing continuous information first. So for example, like, you know, one um, kind of currency of visual cortical information is spatial frequency, right? And spatial frequency, there is no like, there is no discrete things. It's just continuous. And some people argue that density is kind of a common currency in the visual cortex, and that's continuous too. So, um, yeah, so that has been a debate. And to address that, um, this was really a contribution of my... Uh, colleague back then when I was a postdoc uh, who developed this um, very creative way of devising or uh, constructing dot array stimuli so that you can actually um, quantitatively assess to what extent numerical and non-numerical dimensions influence either behavior or neural activity. Mm. And we use that approach um, and EEG, where EEG, unlike fMRI, EEG has very high spatial temporal spatial resolution, meaning that uh, it, it it records brain activity at uh, millisecond precision. So we can mm-hmm. see exactly, for example, from the onset of uh, a dot array stimulus, we can see exactly when um, the visual cortical activity tracks either numerical versus non-numerical. Uh, properties of the of the array of the stimulus, and we actually found very interestingly that 
the brain is really, really sensitive to number of items, much more so than any of the other non-numerical dimensions. Very early on, as early as 75 milliseconds since the onset of the stimulus. Mm. And then there are several different peaks, um, again, encoding uh, number of dots over and beyond any of these other non-numerical dimensions. So that was kind of one of the um, uh, first studies to show direct and um, or very fat, very rapid, like very fast, and possibly direct uh, encoding of number of items in an array. So it does seem like there's something very fundamental about perceiving numbers. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, yeah, this has been really fascinating so far. And I think I'm going to re-listen to this one a lot to let it all sink in. Maybe just some like higher level questions and, and like reflections. So we kind of jumped from your PhD to some work you've uh, you know been actively doing and have done since. In terms of like your career, how did you decide to uh, you know stay in academia? And then maybe you could just give a brief overview of what your lab is like now and the broad directions you're working on. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't have any specific like. Other plans. I mean, other plans meaning I, I just I just wanted to do what 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 I was doing, and um and therefore I wanted to stay in academia and continue to research. Um, so I didn't have much chance to I guess opportunity to think about other directions, and it's also because the kind of work that I do, um, but possibly unlike yours, where yours is you know very it can be very practical it can be you know really sold well in industry um i didn't think that there's much that i could do using my my expertise or my research directly in industry so um yeah that's why i just wanted to do you know just applied for uh, a faculty job and and just stayed in academia yeah that that's a kind of perspective that I want to get because yeah, in machine learning, it's kind of there's always like this um, question that a lot of people come across of like academia versus industry. So I wanted to see what it was like from uh, a different field. Right, right. <clears throat> I think if I were in like computer science or engineering, I think I would definitely consider industry as well, um, for sure. Uh-huh. Um, and then going um, towards the future, so. Um, so I've been, as, as I've talked about my past research, I've been um, studying numerical cognition probably uh, for, for about a little more than a decade. Um, but my studies, my research has been within, more or less within this non-symbolic side. <clears throat> um, and since a few years ago, I've been started I've started to look into um, the symbolic part, the the number, the precise number concepts aspect of numerical thinking or numerical cognition. And I really got interested in um, this idea that our our linguistic ability is key to um, understanding the generativity of numbers. So generativity, what I mean by that is we understand that 
number is uh, generative in a way that we're making using finite set of items, or we're making um, possibly in, infinite, or at least you know definitely indefinite uh, conceptual items, right? Mm-hmm. So, and um, this is has been uh, a hypothesis and, and theoretical framework that that my lab, my students, and I have been building in the past couple of years is that our ability to use um, or have a representation of recursion or recursive thinking mm. is key to numerical, uh, key to generative number concepts. So I've been using, having a lot of, um, running a lot of behavioral studies in kids to look at um, to what extent the syntax of syntax of numerals, complex numerals such as like seventy-five or twenty-three, uh, to what extent kids understand that, and to what extent that relates to their higher-level mathematical thinking. And at the same time, um, I've been recently running uh, neuroimaging, fMRI, and EEG studies, looking into the neural substrates of um, sequence and hierarchy processing. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to making some contributions in that relatively, relatively new field of mind. So, like, yeah, moving from the approximate system to the symbolic system, and then that raises, uh, yeah, new questions. So, yeah, there's two questions that I always end the thesis review with. Sure. Um, so the first is about objective functions. So if you could think back to your PhD if, if you could come up with some objective function that was guiding the your decisions and the type of research you were doing, uh, what do you think that it would be? Was it just kind of scientific curiosity? Uh, and then do you think that that's changed uh, since your PhD? Uh, yeah, that's very interesting. So when I, when I read that question of yours, when you, you know, sent me a few days ago, like, oh my God, that was like, the, the the word that I've never seen in my like twenty years in my life <laughs> that reminded me of my uh, linear programming back in college. Um, <laughs> so my objective function. Um, so that kind of tells you to what extent I haven't actually been thinking about <laughs> uh, in that realm. Um, I think. Um, I mean, to, so, I mean, you raise scientific curiosity and for sure, that's definitely part of it. Um, and maybe it's kind of a cliche, but for me, it was really um, just like trying to find out um, just, just like, so to me, it was like working on a puzzle, right? Mm. So you have this missing piece and, and you really want to find the right one to, to fit in. And the the reason that so I think earlier on in this interview I told you about how uh, I didn't like some aspect of you know the the engineering culture where it was really competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, one um, one aspect of the the culture that I'm in right now that I I appreciate more is the idea that uh, we're all uh, cooperating each other to kind of hack the nature. Mm. So it's not that I have to win over you to 
you know, to release this product or get get this patented or something like that. It's, uh, you know, you and I do try our best to unlock the question, unlock the the puzzle, uh, or unlock mm-hmm. the key, unlock the key in nature. So that has been kind of one driving force for me to just keep working on. So so in a way that that allowed me to um, not be discouraged, for example, when I get scooped <laughs> mm. or, um, you know, when or to not get too jealous if, you know, some other people find something really interesting that I was about to find. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I think that has been somewhat helpful for me, both physically and mentally kind of, um, yeah, staying in academia until now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, do you think that, like, there's some problems that they're so difficult that it only makes sense to have this kind of collaborative outlook versus a competitive one? So maybe that's what's Um, kind of getting at. Yeah, so I think um, this newer, I mean, it's probably, probably true in any kind of, you know, any scientific domains that um, that are unsolved at this point, but um, especially in this newer research avenue that I'm interested in, that I'm invested in, which is about <clears throat> the um, about the acquisition of number concepts. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason that this is fascinating to me is because we need to actually know a lot more about other fields, other findings and, and ideas and, and theories from other disciplines to understand what's going on. I told you a little bit about how this numerical thinking might be based on linguistic processing, especially recursion. But at the same time, um, there's also, I think it feels like I need to know much more about um, history and anthropology um, of how numerals became numerals and um, how people without numerals, for example, people without numerals, modern numerals think in terms of, you know, or have people without numerals um, do their, I guess, um, mathematical uh, activities, right? So all these kind of kinds of questions can really pinpoint to advancing our knowledge about number concepts, acquisition of number concepts. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, you're, yeah, you're getting at that point where, where we, um, this number, uh, numerical cognition, especially when it comes to number concepts acquisition, a lot of disciplines need to come together to tackle this problem. Yeah, and that is a a good feeling. I mean, like we were talking before, this was one reason why it was great to have you on the podcast was like, I was thinking about like getting machines to do mathematics. And then the question is like, well, maybe it'd be good to understand a bit about how humans do it. And right. um, yeah, like you're saying, sometimes you have to draw upon multiple fields. Right. Yeah. Okay, cool. And then the last question uh sometimes it's the most difficult question is if you could come up with one piece of advice for a new researcher uh so just based on your experiences and it could 
either just be something simple, like a simple heuristic. Doesn't have、mm. to be all encompassing, or、um, if you want, it could be a grand piece piece of advice. Oh, yeah, that's tough. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you're giving me a hard time here. I think I would just say that. Um, <laughs> I think I would just say, enjoy what you're doing at that current moment.、Mm. Um, yeah. If it's concise, it's easy to remember. So I'm sure a lot of people use that. Yeah. Well, so th- thanks so much for taking the time to do this.、Um, I learned a lot reading through your thesis and and going through your work. And、uh, yeah, I want to try to do this more on the thesis review.、Uh, reach out to people in in other fields, and I think ultimately everything's loosely re- related somehow. So、uh, this has been a great conversation. Thanks so much for coming on the thesis review. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure.